This is AV Week. Friday, September 2nd, 2011. Brundlefly. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. It is time again for AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of news and commentary for the AV industry. I'm your host, Tim Albright. With us today is George Tucker. He is the engineering coordinator for World Stage. Hello, George. Good afternoon, all. Uh, Also with us today for the first time, Bradford Ben. Bradford is an application expert for Harmon International. Hello, Bradford. Hello, all. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Welcome, welcome. And uh, with me in studio is uh, Michael Drainer. He is from Tech Electronics in St. Louis, Missouri. Welcome. Welcome. I just welcomed you. I know. Okay, it, just, it just sounded cool. Um, <laughs> we're going to kick it off real quick uh, on a conversation and continue it from Twitter and also Google+. Plus. Uh, what the basic question is this, AMX versus Crestron. George, we're going to start with you, um, not only from a product <laughs> standpoint, but also from customer service and other standpoints. AMX versus Crestron. Well, um, I'm going to be a little bit careful here, although I'm, uh, I've been known to have no humility. So, All right, just for the, um, just real quickly, I'm not going to be careful, so you go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, the reason being, as you may well or well not know, is that I used to work for one of the individual companies listed. Uh, and only recently have I uh, been a new, <laughs> a new employment. Um, so my, our, my, my comments are going to be, um, they're going to be weighted, actually in a good way towards Crestron. Um, my personal opinion about the differences between them really comes down to two things. Um, I really like a lot of the AMX stuff. I think uh, on uh, episode one or two, we talked about uh, Infocom mm-hmm. and about how much I was in love with those long-form Modero panels. Those little, little very uh, little rectangular things mm-hmm. that were just awesome to the use. Ed, the edgeless panel. Yeah, the edgeless panels that come in that very strange format. I forget what the actual ratio of them was, but they were sort of more rectangular than they were, you know, square or even sixteen by nine. Um, it, having had experience with both, both outside as a dealer integrator and from the inside of at least one of them, that is Crestron. Um, my personal opinion on this is that Crestron's service and its support structure is, if not far superior, is more proactive. Um, they do a lot of work to try to get people involved in the resolution process rather than saying, we'll get back to you, or that's an engineering question. They really do make an effort to train the guys in not just the technology, but in the ability to, te- to teach and train customers via a phone. Uh, one of the things that we came up with in the very beginning, or they came up with, with what we instituted when I was one of the managers in, in tech support, was what we have to remember is that you're not seeing what the client's seeing. And we have to impart to the client or the, the person needing support on the phone that we need them to describe things in a more detail and we need to verify it in a way that doesn't sound like a script, but that you're still verifying. Because what you see in your head and what they're describing are not always the same thing. And it becomes a very difficult process, especially in early days of getting wireless or Ethernet into the integrators, especially the residential integrators' hands, was, all right, how do you set this up? And them trying to figure out and us teach them on the phone sometimes how you change a subnet and what that means. 
Uh, you know, and okay, you're using which product? It was XYZ product, say Linksys. Okay, we know that in our head. I'm going to take you through the steps to get to where I need you to be. And you don't have time as a support person to always be able to get up the Linksys um, help page to show mm -hmm. you where to go. So a lot of it's that sort of being able to see in your mind what should be. And if you, if you don't know the product, be able to direct that end client on the other end of the phone to where they need to be to get this result, resolution done. And in my experience, that's been a uh, major benefit of, of Crestron. Um, the hardware seems to be, to me, much more um, varied for Crestron, and you have much more choice into being able to fit a specific, um, I'm struggling for words, a specific um, value for that sale. So they have a wide berth of products for whatever sales point you need. So when it comes to customer service and also from a variety of, of products standpoint, you would say that it's, it's Crestron over AMX. So that's, that's one for Crestron. Uh, Bradford, yeah, and, go, ahead, go ahead. No, no, I just want to make the point of the, the Made in America, yeah. with, uh, what AMX is really is, but I'm not sure it's the same level. Bradford, do you have an opinion one way or the other? I know you work for, for Harman, mostly audio uh, audio gear, but do you have an opinion one way or the other when it comes to Crestron versus AMX? Yeah, I come at this slightly a little differently because I'm used to working with them on the other side of manufacturer to manufacturer and also more in the commercial market than in the residential market. And my experience has been that AMX has been easier for me to work with than Crestron as a manufacturer. Hmm. Uh, also, when I was a contractor many, many years ago, like last century, I had better experiences with AMX, but that was before the whole Panja publicly held yeah. company. So, you know, that is in technology terms many years ago. But from a supporting customers that are mutual customers of ours, I've had more success with AMX than I have with Crestron, uh, there seems to be a little more ownership of the problem and working to get it solved uh, rather than saying it's manufacturer A versus manufacturer B. It's just we don't care. Let's go solve the problem with AMX, which I don't get that same feeling with Crestron. So that's just and like I said, that's from a different different side point of, you know, manufacturer to manufacturer. I can't comment on well, it's like being out in the field because oftentimes I'm talking to engineers, not to the frontline tech support guys. Okay. So one-on-one, -on -one, Michael, you are an integrator. Um, you, you feel free and, and be as careful as you would like, sir. <laughs> AMX versus Crestron. You know, we are a dealer for one of the said companies and are aspiring to become a dealer for one of the other said companies <laughs> and you and i've had multiple conversations um you being one of my end users uh about your preferences and why you prefer one over the other we'll get and to that in a second those uh those sediments are definitely shared um amongst many of my customer base um let's just say tech support is free with crestron mm-hmm I don't have to sell you a service contract. I don't have to maintain that contract, although it would be nice revenue to do so as an integrator. But from the end user's perspective, and that's really what we're here for is the end user, it's, it's much easier to deal with a company that I can pick up the phone and, and just say, I have a CP2E, here's my problem, help me solve it, and they'll solve it. No questions asked, no ands, ifs, ors, or buts. 
let's get it resolved. And I don't get that level of support from AMX. The first question is, what's your support contract number? Then they check to make sure it's current. And, you know, it's, I understand those issues, but at the same time, I'm here for the customer and, and the end user. And it's all about the end user experience at the end of the day. Because the fact of the matter is the AV integrator is not always going to be there. There's going to be times when the customer has to call that tech support line themselves and resolve those issues, whether or not they're a programmer. Yeah. And I know you've got some words to say about that. <laughs> well, so so yours is, is Crestron, so it's... it's Well, in, in that capacity. Now, that being said, I like a lot of the AMX products. I'm a big fan of a lot of the products, and I've got customers who are fans of the products. Um, but when it comes down to the final decision, they're weighing all the options. It's, you know, will the Crestron product do what I need it to do, A, where's the price point, and what's the support system like? Okay, so you're split. I'm you're, split. You're Switzerland. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm split down the middle. <clears throat> I'm not Switzerland, and I'll get this going right now. Um, <laughs> I, I, I make no bones about this in any way, shape, or form. Um, I have no use or, or no – I've never had a good experience with an AMX product or an AMX problem. Um, I've had nothing but good experiences with Crestron. Um, that is the one thing I'll say. I, I'm not going to sit here and bash one or the other, but the, the products I've used for Crestron, the, the products, the people that I've, I've interacted with at Crestron have all been good experiences to me. You know, yes, there have been issues, and yes, there have been stuff that hasn't, hasn't worked. But back to George's point, their customer service, again, from my standpoint as, as an end user, uh, has been second to none, and I do mean none, regardless of, of whether it was a, a switcher manufacturer or or a screen dealer. Crestron's customer service really is, in, in my opinion, one of the best in the industry. AMX, on the other hand, is not. <laughs> um, whether it's you know needing a service contract and having to pay for, for customer service, which I think, by the way, is a horrible, horrible business plan, uh, is, is just lacking in so many different areas. And unfortunately, it was probably happened around the same time that they got incorporated. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but but all of this stuff seemed to happen around the time that that they got you know a part of a, a big corporation. Crestron, as 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 big as the, as it feels like to me, they are still feels like a, a small company when it comes to dealing with the customer. Um, and, and I say that because you know they still. Um, care and that's probably the wrong word because i don't want to infer that that amx doesn't care about the clients but um they seem to um interact more and and a little more uh, 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 proactive uh in their in their customer service well and, and i think what you're getting to and correct me if i'm wrong it's about a difference in culture yeah, it is right. It is. Um, you know, you've got one that is this this corporate giant. They're a publicly traded corporation. They're there about putting. You know, their whole initiative is to put dollars in the pockets of the shareholders. Mm-hmm. That's what keeps them viable. Um, the other one is a is a privately held corporation that that has a um, very defined set of grassroots values um, in supporting their customer base. And and let's just face the facts. AMX has not done any favors for their dealers to help them promote those products unless you are a huge dealer and i'm talking you know you're doing million dollars a year in control systems and and video distribution from that company you're not getting any additional services and support from them i mean i'm getting what the end user gets 
So it's so it's difficult to, for me to provide additional value. So you have to pay for service too. Exactly, and and Jeez. and I, I'm I'm not I'm not trying to to hide it here. I mean, this is a candid conversation I've had with my my uh, my reps and and whatnot. So it's it's uh, it's definitely an issue, and it makes it difficult for us to promote the product when we have to jump through hoops. Mm-hmm to get the support we need for our end users. And, and that, make, that, that makes sense. I mean, when it comes to the products, to me, uh, I'm not going to say a touch panel is a touch panel, but basically a touch panel is a touch it panel. Is. Yes, it AMX is. has pretty stuff. And, and yeah. yes, you know, they have, you know, HD over twisted parent and, and things of that nature. But when it comes down to, um, I'm spending a lot of money for a control system. Um, I want to be able to service that. Yeah, I don't think it comes down way. to a, to a one pro, one product being superior over the other. I mean, a matrix is a matrix, and they do it a little bit differently. And we could get into the details of arguing the video distribution and whatnot, encoding, and yeah, all that stuff. But ultimately, it comes down to the culture of the company, how their their vision for the customer is upheld, and how they go to market with that. So, so George, how do we do? What what do we end up with? <laughs> I think we're uh, mostly it's high hardware, and uh, it comes down to customer service, which actually makes a point that that's what's really all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you I'll can agree. make it better. Go ahead. As I say, George, I was about to agree with you. It's all about customer service because a lot of the products are becoming so similar, and they all can do the same thing. It's the user experience. And from listening to you guys talk about this, I'm listening to this going. Yeah, I think maybe one brand has a better understanding that the Crestron logo that's on the outside of that product or the AMX logo that's on the outside of the product, that's who the end user is going to call. And they're going to mm-hmm. do everything they can to make their their integrator successful so that they call them back. Well, so that- and not only that, Bradford, but but um, I've had conversations with, with some of the guys at Crestron. If this is the sense that I get from them and, and, and you know, I, I get the sense that um, if something doesn't work, nine times out of ten, the, the control system is blamed, regardless of if it's their fault or not. So this is the sense that I get from from at least the culture back, you know, the, the customer service culture back at Crestron, is they're going to do everything in their power to make sure that that works, regardless of it is if it's their quote unquote problem or not. I just don't get that sense from AMX. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and, um, and, I have to. Oh, go ahead, George. I have to say that uh, one one of the things about the culture in that company, uh, Crestron, was that there was a feeling of I am Crestron. Mm. You had a mm-hmm. face, and if you were at Support Tech, you really do feel that way, and that's what you're sort of you're given the the the, the rah rah about is that you are Crestron. And let's not forget that um, regardless of my dealings with Crestron in, in my employment at, at certain points, it is run by a – it's a paternal thing. There is Mr. George Feldstein who, mm-hmm. who built the place, who runs it still, and checks up on every part of it as much as he can and tries to – you know, it's grown exponentially in the last few years. So, you know, he tries to know everybody's name, and there's still that culture. And uh, AMX from day one, at least from, since I've known about AMX in the uh, late 80s, <laughs> um, was still a corporation. Right, and it was that very different. Again, gear-wise, they're always head-to-head. There are some differences in the markets that both of them are chasing, and the sort of granularity of what type of market and what products they're putting out. But in essence, there's a there's a sort of equality on that level. Yeah. Uh, right. But it really does come down to customer services. Who am I going to get help from? 
and which one is more overt about it. And in fact, Crestron is much more overt from social media to, to, to their actual text. Right. Yeah, and I think there's definitely a parallel that can be drawn. And Bradford, you can probably speak to this. Um, you know, that's something that we see with many different manufacturers. Um, that you know, uh, JBL, one of the Harman brands, makes sound reinforcement loudspeakers. Uh, you've got how many other loudspeaker manufacturers? Uh, you're you work for the amplifier division in, in the Crown Group. You got QSC. You've got Ashley. You have uh, Electrovoice. You've got a number of manufacturers out there, all capable of doing pretty close to the same thing. It really comes down to preference at the end of the day to the integrator and the end user when they're making those buying decisions. And I think that at the end of the day, that company culture, that level of support, the, the, the way you interact with the people has a, a huge bearing on the decision that you make. Oh, I agree with you 100 percent. It's one of the things I've been working very hard with our with our inside sales team as well as our tech support team of you know, people buy our products to make money. We need to make it easy for them to do business with us and to be successful and to make money. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's starting to come around more and more because, like you said, uh, there are many good competitors out there. It comes down to who's the easiest to do business with. I liken it to buying a car. You can buy a car from brand A or brand B. They're both going to get you from point A to point B. But which one's easier? Which one do you like better, whether it be the guy who greeted you when you came into the showroom or the how they take care of, of the maintenance guy back there versus all these other things? You know, it's the exact same thing. It's the customer experience is much more important nowadays than it used to be, especially with the Internet and people talking about what's going well and what's going poorly. And having people take ownership of issues is a is a key idea. And if the if like you like George said, you know, I am Crestron. I take a lot of the attitude of, you know, I am Harmon. I am Crown. You know, mm-hmm. you call with the problem. It doesn't matter whose problem mm-hmm. it is. I'm gonna at least get you pointed in the right direction because, come game time or whatever event you're shooting up against, if you're not successful, we're not successful. It's taken on think, that. I, oh, good. Go good. I say. Well, I think a lot of companies, especially publicly held companies, sometimes forget that. Right. Yeah, right. they do. It, it's taking that ownership. It's that ownership and in, in identifying you uh, as the individual, as being the company. You are the face of that company. And, you know, I correlate the same thing to, to my firm. You know, I am Tech Electronics. And that's not from an arrogant standpoint. It's I want to make sure my customers are taken care of. So, well, And it's no different because all of us have something yeah. to sell unless you Absolutely. are the final end user. And then you have other customers. Right. There, there is money to be had. And, 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 and price difference can only cover so much. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, all of us have said this, then it does come down to, to how you treat the customer and, and how they feel. Are, are, are they happy to open their wallet and, and write a check? Right. So. Right. All right. Um, on to Apple and the Chinese government, or I'm sorry, Chinese environmentalist. Uh, something that's kind of uh, come up uh, the last couple of days. Uh, a coalition of Chinese environmental groups is accusing Apple of ignoring some serious problems at some of the factories where its things are put together. Um, but uh, the uh, this is uh, from Marketplace. Uh, Steve Han says that thanks to um, some stuff, you can you can seriously track where Apple's environmental footprint. Um, and he says that uh, researchers at the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs in Beijing found evidence that factories suspected of supplying Apple with parts are poisoning the waterways. George, is this an issue? You know, this is something. That, yeah, yeah. Well, it's an issue because 
Apple is one of these companies, and I think they point this out in the marketplace. Uh, was it a public radio uh, um, show? Marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, they think that Apple is this again a company that wants to. It has a huge and um, very tight fan base. The end users are very dedicated to the to the brand and to the, the products that the company put out, and to into Steve Jobs and crew. But that's there's such a, a weird dichotomy with how loving and embracing the, the, the end users of Apple are to how closed and non-communitive Apple actually is. And you, as you said, they said suspected Apple dealers. No one knows mm-hmm. who, their deal, who, their, who their people are. And, and I get that from a business point of view. That's fantastic. If only we could have done it, right? If only some of us could have kept that kind of um, monopoly on what's going on. Um, but you have to be transparent in this. We know that there's been issues in China. <laughs> Good gosh, do we know that a there's few, been yes. issues in yeah. China with that kind of stuff and everything from the baby food to the tainted milk to the – and there's an issue here. And do we want we, – we, we react in horror at it, and yet here we are purchasing a product that may be sponsoring something very similar. It's poisoning the water of the river. How far down the river does it go? What happened to the village just outside of that manufacturing district? Are those people getting cancer, dying, or you know, being being just severely injured by it? There has to be some accountability to this. Now, I'm hoping that this is not as bad as say Bhopal, India, with uh, I forget who the chemical company was that that had that leak that uh, of cyanide Union, that, that Union Carbide. Union Carbide. That's right. Yeah. They've renamed themselves, I think. But yeah, um, you know, you want that openness from a product that you love so much that you adore this and you wait for the iOS five, <laughs> yeah. and you want to see that white iPhone, and you want to believe that that company has some kind of generosity and attentiveness to what it's doing beyond making a profit or the best gear. There has to be that line of, we make fantastic stuff, but at what cost? And if it comes down to being at what cost, I wonder what a lot of people will do. Will they just shrug it off and go, I don't care? Or are they going to say, you know, that gives me pause. Maybe I will look at somebody else's tablet and see if I can make it work. Grow with the ecosystem. Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, I want to kind of uh, I agree with a lot with what you're saying George and I but I literally bought a, a new Mac last week and in that week since then Apple has reached out multiple times to me to make sure I had a good experience so we're going back to customer experience mm-hmm. but the new one that I hadn't seen before was that you know I just experienced was how much they're pushing how green they are and cradle to grave uh, processes right in their system but also i got an email asking me if i wanted to recycle my old electronics through them at no additional charge oh wow Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like what has me giving me pause is the are they playing green for political and advertising purposes and then on the backside being bad citizens or is it just they hired a manufacturer over there and because the manufacturer isn't officially a harman or sorry, an Apple company. <laughs> Man, I'm gonna get fired if I yeah, do you are. Uh, But it, because they're an Apple company, you know, they're not an Apple company. It's an independent contractor that Apple can say we don't know anything about it. We just buy parts from them. And there's that certain, that certain disconnect that I I wonder about as to how much they're actually taking complete ownership of the product and how much of it is just they're taking control of the marketing of their product. And I think that's going to be the the fallout of this is more what's the company versus what's the product. Well, and it's it's plausible deniability for them. Um, you know, they are really really big in 
uh, you know, the, the art community and in the video community. I mean, the, you, you can't go into most production houses without seeing a majority of Macs. And so I, it may very well be more marketing or it may just be where they say, you know what? What our manufacturers do is <laughs> between them and the government and God. I don't know. And, you know, I think there, that a lot of companies are doing that, especially in China, because of the fact that you don't own the manufacturer. It's a contract manufacturer. It's just mm-hmm. the same as if you hired someone to paint your house. Yeah. You don't know what they're doing with the paint when they're done painting your house. And how many of us really ask if we hire a painter? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a supply chain issue. You know, I, I mean, even if you put the cradle-to-grave processes in place, you're never going to be able to source 100% of everything that you need to manufacture a product. And yeah. it's going to come down to how much influence does Apple have over their supply chain or their, their um, uh, component providers? Um, you know, how much clout do they have with those individuals and whether or not they're going to be able to get control of this thing? Um, because I don't think that they're inherently a bad company. I mean, who knows? Anything is possible. But I doubt that they're coming in in the morning saying, hey, we're going to pitch this line and tell everybody we're a green company and then we're going to pollute the waters and kill all the children in China. I just I don't find that to be a, a realistic um um, expectation and they, and, and they may be a green company you know uh, yeah. from their processes and right. and all the stuff they're building a brand new facility i'm sure it's going to be some crazy uh metallic lead something or other you know what's beyond platinum i don't know adamantium right but then but then it comes down to them influencing their suppliers mm. you know like like uh, bradford was talking about to make sure that that cradle to grave control is in place even if they're not the the primary manufacturer of that subcomponent Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, moving on. There is a new cabal of LCD manufacturers. I like that word, cabal. Uh, Toshiba, Hitachi, and <laughs> you're, Sony. You're easily amused. I am easily amused. <laughs> uh, cabal, yes. Um, although it's Japanese <laughs> company, so I'm sure there's a Japanese word for cabal. Uh, what they're doing, guys, is they're 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 coming together. Toshiba, Hitachi, and Sony, which you know we've we'll, we'll talk, we've talked about Sony's issues before. Um, they're, they're, they're coming together in a joint venture to make small and medium-sized LCDs and tablets, uh, tablet PCs and smartphone uh, LCDs. Uh, <laughs> here's the interesting part about this that I thought, besides the fact that it's Toshiba, Hitachi, and Sony. They're getting a subsidy from the Japanese government to compete with the rivals from Taiwan and South Korea. Um, is this... Uh, First of all, is this a good idea for these three to come together? And secondly, is this something we're going to see uh, as an idea to kind of flower into other con- into other countries um, backing their guy or, or their company, the, the companies that are in their in, within their four walls? Uh, something like, you know, do you see China coming forth and, and, and giving their company subsidies? Do you see the, the manufacturers in Korea giving their um, companies uh, subsidies to you know start flooding the marketplace with you know ten dollar LCDs. Well, I guess I'll jump in a little bit here, and I'm not surprised, and I and I think it's one of those things of I think every country does it in various ways, and I think this was to some degree hit the tipping point more after the earthquake hit of they needed something to revitalize the economy and the electronics market there because I think that's definitely been impacted by the earthquake and the fact that they had this 
lag where they couldn't produce anything. So people started looking at other vendors. And so mm. all of a sudden, South Korea and China started coming in. So I think it's a, it's a logical move to kind of kickstart some, uh, some creation of, of new technologies and creations of new, new jobs. The same way that here in the States, you know, there's a technology corridor that has tax breaks if you build a company here and we're going to give you, you know, like we've done for solar and other companies. Not saying it's good or bad, just it's a fact that we all kind of do it. And I think it's here what they're hoping to get is that the economy of scale will make them be able to push up against the other brands. And I, you know, realistically, I think we all know that at some, at some point, an LG display versus a Samsung display versus a Vizio display versus all these other ones, there's the same gut electronics in there. And I think they're just being more upfront about it in terms of let's just build this together and get the economy of scales. I think it's a good move by the Japanese government for their people. I'm not sure if it's a good move for the business world in general, but I do understand why they're doing it. And what they're hoping to get out of it, in my opinion, is getting some growth back into their electronics markets. And that would be good. George, is this a good idea for the for the Japanese government? You know, it, obviously the Japanese government thinks so, and it thinks that their economy is going to uh, benefit from this. I think it also is sort of the pressure from what they call the China syndrome, I want to call it, the China model, where, you know, the government of China owns a lot of those businesses, even though there's some free market, they're controlling it. And some of that pressure is being put upon these other manufacturers in other countries to say, you know, we need to do something similar without looking like we're, you know, the, the catchphrase political in this country and too socialist, but <laughs> enough to say we're, we're stimulating and, and helping free businesses move forward. You know, what it comes out to be, I don't know, but it also to me seems like a way of also sort of shoring up the traditional hardware supply chain. Yeah. Uh, maybe very Apple-esque there saying, all right, let's shore up our methods of be able to build, deliver, and obtain the raw parts in a way that makes us competitive. Hmm. Uh, well, time will tell. Well, and this would be no different than the U.S. government, you know, I don't know, subsidizing corn or, or, yeah. or giving a farmer money not to raise hogs one year. I mean, the, the, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. Um, but you may raise a good point with, with, with the China syndrome. I like that, by the way. Um, it, it's, you know, them the country owning owning the supply chain and owning the the things uh, real quickly and, and this is this is um uh, this is something that i just found fascinating uh from ce pro kind of dovetailing onto the lcd plasma sales apparently have increased by 17 percent um i'm gonna ask both of you a stupid question i thought about a year ago i read that plasma was dead yep Did anybody else read that <laughs> Yeah, I remember yeah. reading that one. And so, so although, although when I did, I went out and dead. I just I bought a plasma as soon as I saw that. So. I, but okay, this is this comes from Quixel Research. They says that the plasma sales have, have come up seventeen percent in the first half of two thousand three, and increase, increasing revenue three percent over a year to year. Um, and they also, by the way, in the same report says LCDs are down. Um, again, I thought that a year ago, or maybe even longer than that, by, around the time that Pioneer said that they were getting out of the business. Uh, that plasma was dead. Is it back or is it just an uptick because the prices are down? Because, quote, unquote, it's dead. I have a few opinions on that. Surprise. Um, <laughs> That's why we're here. I, would, I wouldn't have guessed that one. <laughs> um, so here's two, two, two things I was thinking about when I first read that, that article. Um, one, 
I think that the LCD market is fairly saturated. I mean, LCDs are everywhere and in everything. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're even on you know large billboard display type uh, things. You know, one of the things that I hear about with a lot of people who do really good high def or install really really fine high def stuff in their in their homes is that you know LCDs smear a little bit on uh, very fast action, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the model and stuff. Um, so that might be part of the technicality, and it looks better in HD. They're glorious. They're just they're beautiful. Um, but I, I also feel like there's a social aspect here, and that is we're still in the quote-unquote new frugality where you know installers are not putting in the massive home theaters at the rate and ratio they were with the super rich. And it's not just because every super rich person has what they need already. It's that some are looking to not look, well, ostentatious in their wealth and spending. There's all kinds of reports on MSNBC and others saying that the, the, new, the new wealth are getting more ostentation, ostentatious in their vacations. But I think there's still something of that nature of, I don't want to build an entirely custom-made home theater that looks like it's the recreation of a Venice <laughs> opera house. They're going to say, well, we're going to make a popcorn machine. It's going to be very nice. But instead of an LCD screen, we're going to put in a nice plasma because that's the ultimate I can have without looking like... I spent a million dollars on something just for one for something I look at an hour a day, yeah. or, or whatever it is. Uh, and I, I do think that maybe part of that's there is that it's cheap enough, in the sense that it's not outrageous. It's being pushed because it's a nice profit margin for a lot of installers, just like the old flat panel mounting days. Um, but there is also that social aspect of the new frugality, but not being so. And I'll I'll agree with you on all that, but I also think there's another reason that plasmas are making a comeback. Uh, they're less expensive, but also if you if the non high end going through the integrator, you know the guy who walks into Best Buy or the other large box sale houses, and you see a football game on the TV on the display on the weekend, to be honest, in my opinion, the plasma has less jerkiness. It looks more fluid than the LCD, just mm-hmm. as we talked about, and I think that's as much of an impact as anything else because the guy's going to walk in and go this is nine hundred dollars that's nine hundred dollars but look i don't see any trails after the football yeah you know and i think that i think that a lot of the consumers aren't caring if it's plasma or lcd they're caring that they get a sharp picture because you know i kind of use the example of my mother if i ask her what time the tv she has she says she has a ge (laughs) you know (laughs) they don't care they just want a nice picture right right I'm sorry, your mother has a GE? <laughs> she actually doesn't. I got her a new one since then, but she still thinks she has the GE. My mom has... I had. If I could find her a, a rotary cell phone, I would. Uh, <laughs> believe it or not, I actually remember those. <laughs> I remember my Zenith. Yeah. Okay, that was... I liked my Zenith. Wow. Quality goes in before the name goes on. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, even myself, I, I bought a plasma when I was upgrading my home. You know, my family room, it was, you know, one was the affordability, two was the picture quality. Sure, it's heavier. It consumes a little bit more energy. But, but, not, much by, more, but not much more. Not anymore. Not much more. No. And and by and large, even even against the LED displays, the, the backlit um, LCD stuff, um, I still found that the plasma, the color reproduction, the contrast mm-hmm. ratios, everything was superior to that of any of the LCD technologies. I, I so. would totally agree with that. that. That's one thing that, that I kind of bemoaned it a year ago because I have been a big fan of plasma displays. Mm-hmm. Just in general. I mean, they, they do. They just look better. They, they, and it comes down to me, it comes down to, to the different types of technology. You right. know, one is emissive and one is transmissive. One is a giant 
digital uh, stained glass window, and that's the LCD. And the other one, it actually creates the colors. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Now, I'll say this. Once the LED panel manufacturers start getting on the ball, or the OLED manufacturers get on the ball, and you give me a a 25 or a 40-inch OLED that is not... $50,000, $50,000, then that'll give Plasma a run for its money mm-hmm. it, from from a price standpoint and from a quality standpoint. Right. But that's yeah. just... Now, just for my edification, mm-hmm. what do you guys have in your houses? Is it LCD, Plasma, or LED? Um, I have a, a, a Samsung 50-inch L, uh, Plasma in my house, and I'm thrilled with it. George, what what, what is in the uh, the Tucker den? <laughs> I, have, uh, I, have about, I have two LCDs. And I also have two LCDs as well. And I did it by looking at the picture. It's more of just, you know, we're all buying LCDs, but is, did we buy it because they're LCDs or because we thought the picture looked good? Did, did I say LCD? I, I thought I, it, plasma. I, I meant plasma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you said plasma. Okay, just, just making sure. I do Now, that being said, I do have a, an LCD upstairs in the, in, the bedroom. in the bedroom. But in my family room where we watch our movies and our regular TV, that's the, that's the plasma. You know, I have to say that I, I've been off plasmas just because they were so expensive for, for my, my, my budget, um, you know, in a size that would be decent for me. Because I don't watch much sports, but what I do watch is hockey. Mm, and yeah. oh, there is yeah. definitely, even with the, the nice units that I have, you know, when you get in close, that streaking, that little jerky, that shows up really a lot. <laughs> and it's sort of you get accustomed to it and you just figure out how to blind it out of your head. But <laughs> I would love love to have you know even a 30 inch plasma where i could watch my hockey is that is that a vi- is that a like- visual precedence effect i think partly yes and it just gets so <laughs> fast and when they pan you know yeah or you could do like i do and spend way spend way too much for the 240 hertz refresh rate so the hockey looks good right yeah right that's exactly right when you could have gone for the plasma at a third the price or half the price <laughs> Yeah, but there was a wife acceptance factor, which is, of course, the ultimate yeah, factor in all. Is, yeah, yes, I think we could all agree on that one. Yes. That, that's why there's not a projector in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, moving on, George sent this, uh, and I thought it was kind of interesting. It was from MSNBC, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Sony's new products doomed to mediocrity. It's by uh, Wilson Rothman, and, and the, the the author goes through a number of. Um, I'm not going to say horrible products because, um, as I've said before, I, I think there was a time when Sony, when you just said the word Sony and you immediately thought of quality. Um, but some of these products um, are silly, and I'm not sure that either the market is ready for them or that these are fully developed products. Um, George, why don't you take us through at least one or two of them, and, and, and we can each kind of go around and, and give our own two cents on some of these, the, the smartphone, the, the reader, the tablet, and the wonderful 3D, which is awesome. That well, my, my biggest disappointment is with all of their digital video slash MP3 type players. They are the originator of the mobile audio device, right? I mean, you know, your Walkman was a big deal, and they never progressed past that the fact that that's what they were doing i mean they tried to do their dcc for a while to fight it remember dcc digital compact cassette phillips and sony no you know, with your id no. markers don't remember we're that one. dating ourselves now wow yeah well they they, they uh, this is during the time of um the dats mm, and yeah, that of course is a professional standard right. and it's very expensive but you've got that what 12 second to finding a track on a very long tape or not even that long it had those id markers well dcc was similar um 
and admit you know required special heads and all this other stuff and it was a complete and utter out of the box failure didn't even but sell right it it did have the one advantage of you could also play regular cassettes in it which is why they this were banking true. on it right this is true you couldn't play DCC in an older unit but you could play yeah the crossover stuff um, just, just for the record guys there's a number of listeners going what's a cassette yeah, <laughs> not that many. That those are pieces of rust with glue on mylar. <laughs> you go. When you pass a magnet, they go in different positions. Yeah, yeah you know um, what? There, there's three or four different products I can think that that fits that description too. So, yeah. well, including eight track. Right. The reason, the reason I brought that. I brought that up not to interrupt you, George, but was I think that was one of the reasons that Sony embraced that was they looked at it as an upgrade path for their existing right. Walkman market base. But they were doing it at the same time as CDs coming out, and it really just, right? You know, yeah. I mean, look at their look at their litany of stuff. There was mini disc, DCC. I mean, that they got and beta they got successful in the pro markets with, but that's not the market share they were looking for. Nor it probably took them decades more to get the return on the investment. Um, and they just seem to not be getting. Again, the customer's desire. Sony, much like Apple at times, Apple understands what customer desires are and will really make an effort to provide those features. Sony seems to be saying, this is how we make it. Deal with it. Well, you know, I, I it's, actually... It's a Microsoft mistake, right? It's yeah. a Microsoft mistake. What was Zune? Zune was them saying, we're also, we can also do this, but here's how you do it. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. They're taking the Me Too approach, but you just said something that, that just triggered this to me, and that is Apple gets the consumer... Because they're delivering not just the device, but the turnkey package. It's here's my device. Here's the content that goes on it. Here's everything that you need to use this. And you don't get that from Sony. You know, you don't get that yeah. in, in their video products. You don't get it in their audio products. You don't get it in their in their e-readers. Um, you know, that's why the Amazon Kindle does so well as an e-reader. Because they are the content provider for the, and- for the device. And actually, I'll yeah. probably, I agree with you, but I think that Sony lost it. I think they used to do it. And I'm going to go back to something we talked about a couple minutes ago with the wife acceptance factor. <laughs> Even though I work for one major consumer electronics manufacturer, up until about six months ago, my entire home theater was all Sony. Mm. I mean, mm. display, CD player, Blu-ray player, well, it was a PlayStation, decoder, receiver, everything. The reason was it was just that, a turnkey system. The single remote that controlled the entire Sony system was what made it feasible and usable for everyone. And I think they took their eye off that ball and went in too many different locations and you know didn't do the let's do a system. Because like you said, the e-reader, yeah, they were they weren't I think they were pretty close to first, mm-hmm. but it wasn't an easy solution. It was, you know, I looked at one and went, yeah, this, this is too much work. Well, and it, it, I th- it was because, you know, yeah, they, they handle a lot of different formats, but it was you buy this and then you go find stuff to put on it. Right. They looked at it like a CD player. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily bad, but it's just it's a different model. And I just kind of come back to the whole iTunes thing and iPod. It, if, for those of us who remember way back when, when iPods didn't work on Windows machines. Right. And the whole reason was exactly that. The entire experience of the iPod was designed to sell more Apple desktop machines. So so do you guys see what's happening here? We you know earlier we were talking about different manufacturers and products and one superior over the other and the cultures and I think we're seeing the same 
parallel or the, the same issue here is, Sony. you know, with Sony that, you know, there are other companies that just get the end user. All things created equal. The Kindle does the same thing that the Sony e-reader does, that the Nook does, that all these other competitive products are capable of doing. But Amazon gets the end user experience. They've got that culture. They just get it. And I think somewhere along the line, Sony lost that. And I think you hit that on the head, Bradford. Well, and, and it also may just be the fact that, that Sony is, I don't know, an aging company. It, it sounds weird saying that. But the, but they are an aging company that had a market share for so long that, again, back to, to George's Microsoft uh, analogy, that's a really good analogy because, right. you know, now they are, they've kind of, you know, been, been stuck where they were and they're, they're playing catch-up. So um, on to one of Sony's uh, competitors, Sharp. And this is come from uh, our guys over at uh, our buddies over at Rave Publications. Uh, Sharp is debuting the wireless TV line, and I'm quite excited about this. Everything is wireless <laughs> except for power. Um, it, what it is, it's it's um, basically everything from the, the signal and, and control and the whole uh, the whole shebang. Um, it's uh, it's something called Freestyle TV. You can uh, send the signals up to 50 feet away, so you can have your box over in, in your in your nightstand for your for your bedroom one or in the console you have the the pretty little uh, picture console and have the entertainment center over to the side michael you're an integrator are you excited about not pulling cable or is this too scary for you because it's wireless i'm a commercial integrator i don't play in the residential market a whole lot and you know due to the reliability issues in the in the rf space we just don't um, we don't go after wireless technology in most of our installations. Now, if they can come up with a solution that is definitely stable, and this may be, um, then we might take a serious look at it. But to date, I have not found a wireless technology that is stable enough for me to promote. I wouldn't necessarily disagree with the wireless part, but there will come a day, um, in Georgia or Bradford, you guys can correct me on this, there will come a day uh, when... Wireless will be as solid as a wired solution, or am I just silly in that? I think you're silly. <laughs> and, and, and here's I was hoping you would say that because I was going to if you didn't. <laughs> and, and here's the reason I say that: not just to be flippant, but I'll be. I have two sharp TVs. I have one of them that has the predecessor to this with the internet. You know, I put in a USB dongle and it has an Ethernet port on it, and I can stream directly to it from Netflix and you know, all these other things, and off it goes. However, having said that, because everyone in my neighborhood has Wi-Fi, and I have Wi-Fi in my house, I just don't get good reliability. And I think that as wireless becomes more prevalent, you're going to get an overall degradation of the system, kind of like the way that, you know, when there was only a couple radio stations way back when in the 60s and 70s, you know, all the radio sounded pretty good. And then as we got more and more channels in, you started to get all sorts of problems. And I think that same thing's going to happen in the house. You know, my first question with this wireless TV is what happens if I have one in the living room and one in the bedroom? Would there be intermod between them? Does that mean I can stream from one to the other? You know, there's all these little things. And I think, I honestly think all that Sharp's really doing is better packaging on their currently available streaming solutions that they have, which I got to give credit to them for. But having said that, I just did a whole lot of effort taking my entire home theater system and going from Wi-Fi, 802.11a and 802.11n, and going 
to hardwired and I know networking and you know new change the channels and how to avoid cross mod and use better line of sights and use better connection and I was still frustrated with it and I think most of the integrators and the home users are going to go you know I can cut down on my service calls just by putting a cable in because one 50 foot cable that costs you know a dollar 50 in cat 5 cabling is going to save me how many tech support and calls in the process so i i think it's not going to to be a big winner i think it's it's a buzz factor well and i don't even know that it's it's necessarily just the video transport and this particular product in 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 particular um you know it's an rf issue there is only so much rf resources available to us you know the airwaves only have so much space and actually if if you go to the the website av nation tv there was a special that i did recently with a couple of gentlemen from sennheiser and we were talking about this issue specifically within the wireless microphone space and george i know that you've got had some experience with this that mm-hmm. you know if you're doing a live event anytime you can wire a microphone you're going to be much better off than trying to go wireless for everything and i think the same holds true in the home and in the commercial <laughs> av space Anytime you can wire it, you're going to have much, much, much fewer problems than whenever you go wireless. Yeah, you know, I've, I want wireless HD and wireless video transmission to work within the home. And all of those things that, that you said are desirable. But I got to tell you, my one word for this that I've had every time someone mentions it is brundlefly. Excuse me, <laughs> Brundlefly. You, you know you're going to have to explain that one. <laughs> Brundlefly. Well, I wrote a blog post about this a couple of years ago when uh, EE Times was doing a, a whole retrospective of the last two years of wireless video transmission and just calling them basically a failure. Anything that they came up with was a failure or not mature enough. And a couple of years later, it's still true. Uh, you can't really transmit that much of a bandwidth for all the reasons in that wonderful, by the way, I love that that show with the Sennheiser guys about the white spaces. Oh, thank you. Um, that you you can't fit it all on that bandwidth. And eventually when it becomes saturated, even with the sell-off of the analog channels, it's going to be mostly data communication and stuff like that, you're still going to be problematic. For very short runs, maybe for the kids' room that you don't want wires in that playroom that you can just put to a display, that will work. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with it. But when you start getting into real HD and some of the stuff they want to release in the next specs and the next two years for HD and, and over HDMI and things like that, I'm just not satisfied that it'll keep up with it based on limited bandwidth, limited airspace, you know, what it can actually modulate. You know, I, do I want to say freedom from copper and say, you know, take that, China. You can't put my copper prices up anymore and I don't need you? <laughs> yes, I do, but it's not going to happen. Um, you know, and, and the last thing about this, you know, I want to know what they have against Tesla. What do you mean no wireless power? Come on. <laughs> yes. I'm with you on that one. It's not truly wireless until you get the power. The you know, and, and, and you know, to sum that up, though, I think that's something that, that, that came to mind to me when, you, when you know, I was listening to this, the, uh, the White Spaces show. Wireless transmission of data and material is the single most convenient thing we've ever developed for this for, for AV. It's also the least reliable format we've ever chosen to transmit right. stuff on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, even if we're talking off-air from the 50s, that was pretty unreliable. Why mm-hmm. are we going back to that even if it's local? It's still an issue. Correct. And <sighs> I, guess, I guess another question is what problem is it solving? You still have to pull power, so you pull one Cat5 cable. It's not as if you're going to move the display every 10 minutes like a wireless laptop. You Typically, the display's there, and it stays there. I'm not sure it actually makes anyone's life better. Right. 
Right. You know, actually, I was just looking at. Uh, um, I looked it up uh, yesterday. The uh, the uh, the sharp freestyle. Mm -hmm. And actually, Engadget had an article from April 11th, uh, April this year, okay. um, about how they actually have a freestyle version in Japan that's a portable TV that uses DNLA and Wi-Fi as a portable TV. So your old days of having that little TV you brought to the game mm -hmm. with the antenna, okay, they'd so actually do it over Wi-Fi <laughs> Really? in Japan for channels. Yeah, now, there used to be a video associated, but somebody made them take it down, obviously. But it was actually pretty cool. Like, you know, I just said, okay, hook it up to Wi-Fi, use my DNLA to get my material. So it's sort of like a sling box. Yeah. That's not. Yeah, that's you know? like a, it's like doing slingbox on an iPad almost at that right. point. Yeah. And it, it sort of seems silly. You can't touch it. But, you know, there's probably a market for it in somewhere. Maybe a hospital or some institution where you don't want that stuff established that way, but you can just move it around. But what's the real market? I don't know. Right. Now, all that being said, and, and those are all very valid points, is that there's still going to be that occasional solution where you need a wireless, you know, you're going into a historic building. You can't. You know, they want to display. They don't want all the infrastructure in there. You know, so I do see those applications, but I think all in all, it's something that's not going to be viable, and at least not any time in the near future. Yeah, but mm. and this is one of those ones where if any of you guys do this or the listeners out there, I'm going to come after you for money. Just do power, <laughs> just do power line Ethernet at that point, but you still got to power the display. You know, power line Ethernet's getting you 80 to 100 megabits now on some of the new technology. And right. Same idea and avoid the wireless. Right. Until until yeah. you hack it from the neighbors and uh, you know <laughs> all the I security issues. <laughs> Before we get in trouble, we're gonna move on. Um, I've got three really smart audio guys here in, in production, guys. So um, unless you guys are opposed to this, George, stop laughing because I called you smart. Yeah, I, I don't know who he's talking to here. Um, <laughs> I, I want to take a look at, at AVB and a couple of different reasons. There was a, an article in AV in AV Technology. Um, the one of the coolest and, and, and new things that, that Biamp came out with uh, ran on AVB, um, and the product is, is escaping me now. You're talking about the Tessera? Yes, thank you. Yeah. I, 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 Tesla was in my head, and so the, yeah. the, the Tessera. And, and just to clarify, Biamp didn't develop No, AVB. I didn't say they did. Okay. I didn't say they developed. Right. Okay. I said, but their, what, their new technology did Correct. have that. Correct. So uh, I'll just pass it around. Whoever wants to pick it up first, for, give me, as an end user, some basics. What is AVB? What does it mean? What does it run on? And why is it the newest, coolest thing? Hey, Bradford, you guys are really big on the AVB initiative. You want to take that one? Yeah, I can take this one. It sounds funny. I actually uh, have been involved in product development on this one, and we do sit on the Avenue Alliance, and our and Harmon is on the uh, is in the AVB consortium. So yeah, I I know a little bit about it. Uh, but what's cool about the idea is up until now the vast majority of uh, digital audio transports involving the network involved either taking existing Ethernet and kind of bending it to your will to make it work or uh, just using the Cat5 cabling and it's not actually, you know, a true Ethernet packet. So what's happened since then is this is actually the next generation of Ethernet where this is being built on to the 802.3 standard of Ethernet. So it's a very nice addition of that it will be a standard. Uh, what's also happened is, I'll use Cobranet as the example, because at least in the commercial marketplace, that's kind of where everyone's familiar with it. It used to be you had to configure the network switches on your own and be the smarts in the position. And I spent a lot of time learning how to do that. Whereas now, the network becomes part of the AVB solution and the network is aware that AVB is on the network and prioritizes accordingly. 
So instead of me having to go in and set up a couple VLANs and quality of service to be able to make sure that Cobranet flows quickly and that the email takes a little less time and gets a lower importance on it, now the the switch puts together a defended cloud and says, I'm going to save 75% of the bandwidth specifically for AVB and give it better quality and do better timing. Mm. And it does things like fixed timing using network precision time protocol, which is, I, the numbers escape me at the, at the moment, but it actually starts to use existing Ethernet technologies that started to speed up to make this work. So instead of kind of shoehorning audio into Ethernet, this is actually now the next generation where audio and video is the next generation of Ethernet. So it's actually a true standard. And there are a lot of companies on there. You know, Biamp has the new product. The new Apple products that's shipping with Thunderbolt have the right silicone in there and the right chips so that they can actually do AVB directly from them. Uh, Harman has some products uh, that we're shipping with them. We even have a network switch that's, that's shipping with them that we've partnered with Netgear on. And what's nice is for Netgear, it wasn't a brand new switch. It was new firmware, which <laughs> seems small, but that's a huge thing from a manufacturing standpoint of you're not reinventing the wheel. You're just upgrading the wheel you have. Yeah. Well, the problem, you know, the the um, the Netgear stuff, though, a lot of their switches aren't field upgradable firmware. C- yeah, the, you have to be a little smarter than the switch to put it in. I don't remember if I had to take the lid off or if I just did it through the console. Right. Uh, it's been a little while, and I've slept since then. But yeah. I didn't have to. <laughs> so, so let me see if I hear you. This is not just an audio standard. Correct. This is no. audio and video. Okay, that's kind of cool. It, so, it's yeah. audio, video, and then there, there's a control element to this as well. Is that correct, Bradford? Uh, Control is separate. Most manufacturers, including Harman, are using the same Ethernet backbone to do control, but there is no... It's not encapsulated in the same packets. Yeah, it's not SNMP or any of these other standards. It's each manufacturer is doing their own. So, for instance, on the Crown product that we have under development, uh, we released a press release about it a couple years ago, so, you know, don't worry about getting fired on that one. Uh, yeah, we don't want that. Yeah, it it's a single network cable that has mm-hmm. both control and audio transport on it. Other manufacturers are doing audio and control separately. Which one's right? It comes down to personal preference, but it's the same idea of you can interleave the data because it's just that at that point, data, and the amount of bandwidth you take for control is amazingly marginal compared to the amount of bandwidth that you take for audio and video. And we've Harman's actually already been shipping some of this product, believe it or not, into the into the car market, to the automotive market because of you know we were talking about the wireless displays a couple minutes ago. Mm-hmm. In the automotive market, if you can drop a pound of copper out of a car, think about what that does to the gas mileage. Yeah. While doing AVB for rear seat entertainment or infotainment, all of a sudden became very. Uh, usable to the to the car companies because now it's less copper in the car. That's interesting. If, you know, it's it's those things that you don't, and it's like going into the historic building instead of having to pull through a video coax and uh, audio lines, one Cat five cable or Cat sorry five E or Category six cable, you know, at gigabit, and you have full bandwidth audio and full resolution video all in the same place and run power and poof, you're done. I can easily see it helping everyone out in the installation process, not just in commercial, but also in home. 
And I think that's one of the things that actually gives AVB uh, a whole bunch of opportunities is if you look at some of the AVB uh, uh, sponsors or proponents, it's not just consumer brands. It's not just professional brands. It's both. Whereas a lot of times as commercial integrators or versus residential integrators, you kind of have the two different versions that or the two different standards that don't work well together. You have SPDIF versus AES. They're close. One's balanced, one's unbalanced. You can convert them, all that good stuff. Whereas here, this is AVB where it's the same for both and you can do everything in both. And it's not a pro, it's not a consumer format brought up to pro. It's not a pro format that's dumbed down to consumer. It's an audio video transport for all markets. Hmm. And that's kind of a big thing because, you know, to, to be to speak for the networking guys, the I believe, and I'm, it's been a while since I read the study. There's something like 20 objects in the typical house that can be networked together, and the vast majority of people only network together three things because of how hard networking is for the average user. Yeah. That's why we're all integrators. Uh, <laughs> but the 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 switch companies are looking at how do we sell people more switches to go from the five port switch to the 20 port switch make it easier to put all this together. And if you can wirelessly go in and plug in all your all your audio devices and poof, they start talking, and you can get video from point A to point B, it's a win for the switch manufacturers as well as for the consumers. Yeah. You know, oh, go ahead, George. What does yeah. this do for quality? I, maybe I had a mute for a second because I had someone walk in, but um, <clears throat> what kind of compression are we talking about and what can we get out of it? Uh, from my dealings, it's whatever whatever data rates you want to do i've done 96k i've done 48k it's the thing that's nice is to the ethernet network it's just data so it's how and since it's gigabit you can just keep sending data down until you run out of time so it's up to you as to how if you want to compress it we've done full full non-compressed audio and video without an issue yet hmm. on, a, on a live ethernet net data network as well yeah well I guess the question is, what do you consider a live data network? You know, it's like the video one I saw in the lab, the audio one I'm running in my office. And it's also the same computer that I'm doing word processing and email on. Right, so it's the general network, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm uh, one of the things that some people know about me is I, I come from multiple lives before I got into the AV industry. And, you know, I started in the touring market, ended up in IT as a Cisco network engineer for uh, Anheuser-Busch here in St. Louis, worked in their network operations center, got into broadcast television, and now back into AV. <laughs> so I'm just kind of a long and, way and around. And he used to be a princess at one point. Yeah, yeah. I had the little tinker, <laughs> had the Tinkerbell wings and everything. Um, wow, that's the title today. I am Tinkerbell. No. <laughs> oh, man. I continue. <laughs> anyway. about these mental images is you can't gouge out your eyes. Don't stay. You can't unsee it, Brad. Right, that's absolutely right. What has been seen cannot be unseen. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, my issue with all this, I, by the way, let me preface what my statement by, by saying I am very excited about AVB. I have been asking for a medium to transport audio and video across the land reliably in sync, in time with one another, low latency for a long, long time. 
And, you know, Cobernet was a good step in that direction, but it obviously had its limitations of 32 by 32. And now with um, AVB, we can go as high as, what is it, 420 by 420 in special configurations on audio. Um, so so that's, that's just a tremendous benefit to the industry. I think this is going to be very viable in the dedicated installations where I can build my own network for it. I think it's going to be very viable in small deployments. But I think when we get into the enterprise network, when I'm doing large corporations, the core switches today aren't set up to handle the AVB protocols. And because you have to have special AVB switches in order to facilitate this, unless the big players like Foundry, Juniper, Cisco, HP can upgrade their firmware to handle the AVB packetization, I'm not going to see this in a large-scale corporate deployment. Well, here's a question. Are there um, manufacturers of switches on this AVB council? There are. I mean, uh, who is it? Cisco and Netgear are two of the big so, players so you right would now. think right. then that they would increase and, and have the firmware and, and stuff like but, that. But the issue is that they're special switches. Okay. Well, so, actually, that's, uh, let right, me or, or am I misinformed? No, you are correct. Uh, they currently there are special switches, but in addition to Cisco and Netgear on the on the AVB steering or Avenue committee, there's also Xilinx and Broadcom and okay. Marvell which might not be household names unless you're a geek. Uh, but those are actually the silicone makers that make the Correct. Mac uh, and the actual Ethernet hardware itself that they then sell to Cisco and Netgear. Right. So according to them, they've been selling hardware that can support that for a couple of years now. It's just a firmware upgrade. Okay, hmm. so, okay, so if that's the case, then I am very excited about this because I've been kind of like, oh, AVB, yada, yada. I still have to build a dedicated network, big deal. But, you know, if what you're telling me is true and they're going to be able to release firmware to upgrade the existing 6509 switch that my customer has in their, in their data center, um, then that opens up a whole new world of opportunity. And I don't know exactly which switches can be updated and which ones can't and all those things. That's all up to Cisco and Netgear and yeah. all that fun. But, right, you know, right. I, I was amazed when I took my Thunderbolt computer out and looked in and did a little, and, you know, I, at IEEE a couple of weeks ago, app, an Apple guy actually did a demonstration of it. He took a standard uh, laptop and went into the terminal, made a change, and poof, it was streaming AVB right off. Nice. The, with no change. And I'm like, that's where we need to get. But having said that, the to kind of go back, because just, just like you, I have the network background. I was a Novell administrator, so I'm really dating myself. Wow. <laughs> uh, the, the, the converged networks for the enterprise-wide, I think, will still stay around. And I think that's also, to some degree, where Cobranet's still going to be a viable option mm -hmm. because of the fact that you can run that on pretty much any uh, 100 base T or fast or gigabit network just by setting up a VLAN becomes very useful to to, the, to that market and still gives you digital and gives you all those options and being able to, to route audio around. And we've seen that. I've seen that take off in the sports and arena facilities quite a right. bit. By, so I think that what's nice is a lot of the integrators are going to get bigger pallets rather than saying AVB, AVB and Cobranet goes away. I think it's going to kind of be like, you know, line level versus mic level signal. They both have their place and they're both used for specifics and you get to pick which one's worth uh, the right one for you. Okay, here's hey, – go ahead, George. One more question. But do you think that the, this AVB can make a run at some of the uh, distribution systems that are put out from some of these manufacturers these days? 
you know, there's a bunch of popular, you know, digital or HD over the, the mm -hmm. Cat 5 or the Twisted Pairs? Uh, I think it can. I think it's going to be a little while. I kind of remember back to when Cobranet came on. Mm. It, and, heck, just when uh, digital and the home theaters came on, you know, of you had to buy a fiber optic cable? What's that? <laughs> and, I, fire, you know, I think it's going to be a couple-year transition of everyone getting comfortable with it, but I definitely think it can make a run at it because I think there will also be a certain amount of economy of scale. Mm. Of Right now, one of the downsides is you can't take an Ethersound product or brand A product or brand B product and then plug it into to brand C. So, like, you can't take Ethersound and plug it into Avium or plug that into Cobranet. And I think mm -hmm. having this open, non-licensed standard of AVB will actually make it a bigger change. So you'll be able to go, I like this brand's mic pre's, but I like this brand's DSP's. Oh, look, I can put the two together and be able to get the transport working. Well, and what I'm excited about with this is it's, you know, and Tim kind of stole my phrase here a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, this takes us one step closer to cloud-based switching, switching. Uh, both on the audio and the video side, because I have been yearning for the day that I can do away with my matrix switcher and I can put a device on the LAN that, that, that is a node and I can simply use a, a server or a PC or whatever the case is to tell that node send your signal over here, uh, send your it, signal over there. And, you and know, I, and it's not just IPTV, it's full blown matrix switching with, with audio and video and control all on the land. And I can tell you where, uh, Harman actually has a product that does that right now. It's not like off the shelf. We do, we've partnered with the software company to create something called IDX and it's exactly that all of cool. the paging and all of the video messaging gets done through the network. There is no, there is no central core switcher. There is no auto patch right. or cross point matrix. It's all done via the network and via software. And you know, it, it sounds funny. If you've been to a Southwest Airlines recently, you've heard that system at work. Mm -hmm. Well, we, before we get too excited and, and get rid of all of our switchers and our, our matrixes, um, the, I, I am not from a computer uh, background, so I'll say that. But we we, re we forgive you. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, the one of the things I do understand though about about computers and networks and switches and stuff is that from time to time packets get dropped. Yes. Um, I can't have that if I'm running. You know, I don't know Van Halen and the lead singer's mic is is on this AVB thing. His vocal can't drop out if a packet gets dropped. Is there any provision for that, or are you just telling me that AVB doesn't drop packets? Uh, there's both. Okay. <laughs> uh, because of the defended cloud, uh, your your likelihood of dropping packets is much less because it's given a higher priority as the packet itself is tagged as the most important packet. Okay. Uh, having said that, there are there is work at hand on going to an IP-based and uh, error correction, but that is not currently available. It's currently under development. So when that's going to be ready, I couldn't tell you. I'm not intimately familiar with it, but I do know it's under development. Hmm. Richard, you know, I did a lot of touring and live staging events in my past lifetime, and I know that you still... Uh, not Richard. <laughs> what did I say? Um, I don't know. It's George and Brad. George. On the line, <laughs> I don't know so. what I was thinking, George. I called you Richard. Um you know, if I've got a live event, I'm not using IP as my transport medium for my front of house system and my monitor system. I might use it for ancillary distribution, but what's, what say you on that? 
You, you, you were talking to me, right? He, yeah. he was, unfortunately. Yeah, I called sports. you Richard. I don't yeah. know why. But you know why? Because I, no, right, I, right. I was tweeting with uh, Richard Fergoza uh, here a right. ago. <laughs> Michael, you, I, cannot, I can, you, can, you cannot multitask. No, anymore. I can't. <laughs> Ooh, something shiny. Um, <laughs> Squirrel. <laughs> um, I have to say I agree. Uh, at the current moment. Um, who knows what the next couple of years will bring and, and the reliability of all that and the, and the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Right. Um, uh, I agree. It would be maybe for talent foldback or maybe it would be for, you know, comm link and communications instead of wireless or those XLR wired uh, intercoms for the moment. Um, but for a live show, I don't think I would use it for that except for maybe uh, the hallways of some uh, reception area right. where we'd have a live event, but then I'd pipe in the music or some of the content from there. It's not mission critical. Right. Although, now, Bradford, I do have a question for you. Okay, before we get to the question, yeah, there have been a couple instances where people have done exactly that, gone mission critical with Cobranet for touring mm. systems, as mm-hmm. well as AVB for touring systems. Yeah, with, I, I don't, uh, I don't do Cobranet. I don't do Cobranet for touring systems either. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and, uh, no, nothing against it. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not discrediting. Yeah. I'm just saying at the current moment, you know, with with with. You know, doing something where you're going in and out of a venue. I don't know, maybe, but right. uh, I think uh, we'll see what time brings. So my question is not related to any of this, actually. Um, it's actually related to the nomenclature or the terminology that the author in the article used. He kept referring to the flows. I have never heard this as a reference between, and it, what, he, what it sounded like he was saying is that the flow of the data from one device to another. But I've never heard this terminology. Is that something you're familiar with in the AVB world, or this is, or was it, or was it a, a you know artistic license? Uh, I have never used that term before either, so I think it was artistic license. Good because well, I was wondering why I had to go pee so often during the article, and that thing I figured it out. It was a long way around. I I do a whole lot more geek speak than marketing speak, you know. So I'm talking with the engineers, and we're talking, you know, <laughs> about that type of stuff. But I've never used the word flow talking no. about this. You know, I've talked about data streams, but never flows. Yeah, yeah no. All right. <laughs> and also, I will say that at the upcoming CEDIA, uh Lee Minnick, who is also very involved with uh, AVB is going to be there if you got if you guys want to ask him more questions in person. Okay. He's forgotten more about AVB than I probably know. <laughs> very good. That's Cedia. That's actually next week. With on uh, September um, 9th, 8th, 7th, 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 8th, 9th, 10th. All right, gentlemen. Um, that is all the time we have. Uh, Bradford Ben. He is at Bradford Ben. If you'd like to follow him on Twitter, he is an application and expert. For Harmon, specifically the uh, the Crown uh, division, but he's really smart in other areas. Also with us is George Tucker. He's the engineering coordinator for World Stage. Uh, he is at Tucker Twos on Twitter. Michael Drainer is in studio with me. He is at Michael Drainer. If you'd like to follow him on Twitter, my name is Tim Albright. I appreciate you listening. Uh, check out avnation.tv if you would. And that is all the time we have for AV Week. Thank you.